From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Spreading lies is not new in politics, but slickly packaged fictions move faster, wider, and deeper in the digital age, as satirized by Stephen Colbert on The Colbert Report in 2005. And that brings us to tonight's word. Truthiness. Now, I'm sure some of the word police are going to say, hey, that's not a word. Well, I'm no fan of dictionaries or reference books, constantly telling us what is or isn't true or what did or didn't happen. Who's Britannica to tell me the Panama Canal was finished in 1914? If I want to say it happened in 1941, that's my right. Well, after the election of President Trump in 2016, concepts like alternative facts and post-truth became buzzwords. And calling something fake news increasingly a blunt instrument for discrediting stories, whether based in fact or not. Well, that term is also being used to educate students at Emory University. History 190, fake news, is one of dozens of evidence-focused seminars intended to prepare first-year students for college-level research. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Judith Miller. She's Associate Professor of History at Emory University. She's been teaching the fake news course for the last two years. Dr. Miller, thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. We're delighted to be here. Also with me, Natalia Thomas, first-year student who took the fake news course last summer. Natalia, thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much for letting us be on the show. Well, I'm glad to hear about it. Judith, I'm going to start with you, history professor who focuses on 18th century France and the French Revolution. What's the connection between French history and contemporary fake news? Well, if you think about 18th century France, and this will sound, I think, rather familiar, rising literacy rates, increasing rates of urbanization, and a media revolution. So many people publishing in newspapers, many more readers, and some of the most wild stuff is getting published. Uh, Political pornography about what is really going on at the court. Uh, Some of this stuff is very straightforward news. But some of the most wild stuff is the, were the things that really took off. And people were awash in, in media in the late 18th century. And of course, one thinks then the French Revolution and the terror and the kinds of rumor and conspiracy theories that drove that. So I actually, when I developed the course, I thought that I would start with the French Revolution and come up to the present. But it turned out Emory students were very interested in the late 20th century. So here I am, a French historian teaching 20th century U.S. history. Life is full of ironies. (laughs) Well, Natalia, you just finished taking the the course in your first semester at Emory. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose to take the fake news class? Well, I grew up in Washington, D.C. As we all know, it's the nation's capital. So I've always been surrounded by politics. And I've always been interested in it. And when I saw fake news as an option, I was very intrigued. Um, last year, in my senior year of high school, Lester Holt actually came to visit our school to talk about fake news, but, you know, only briefly. So I really wanted to take a course that would dive into what fake news is, how and why it spreads. Well, yeah. I'd love to talk a little mm-hmm. bit about the curriculum. As one of uh, Emory's, quote, evidence-focused courses, this class is structured heavily around research assignments, whether mm-hmm. in groups or individually. So as part of the first assignment, which you uh, call the library scavenger hunt, Judith, students choose from a list of fake historical news stories that rocked public opinion and culture at the time. First, how did you choose which stories? Well, I just kind of keep my eyes open as the year goes along and look for things that might intrigue students. You want to have topics that will get them into the library. This is really called boot camp for the, for the library. I love this assignment. But 
I kind of keep my eyes and ears open for things that I think would be interesting enough to students and be hard to research so that they really have to get into the library, work with the librarians, finding all sorts of good sources. So it has to be obscure and difficult. Uh, that will, so yeah. what would be an yes. example of one of those stories? Um, well, I, I get things from all over the world. So, for instance, one of the students that chose last year a topic that had to do with a photograph of the Turkish prime Turkish president with a soccer player that caused a scandal. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that you've got to get into the library to track that all down and see that this really happened. Um, yeah. And then we had some other things. The Planned Parenthood baby parts scandal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Less obscure, but certainly consequential. So I also look for things that are consequential. Natalia, which one did yeah. you choose to research? Yeah, so I did the post about how apparently illegal refugees were getting $3,874 a month while Americans were getting Social Security checks averaging about $1,200 a month. And how did you chase that down? Yeah, so... Well, I first was interested in it because my mom is an immigrant from the Dominican Republic. So I really want this topic really focused on, you know, xenophobia. Mm -hmm. And um, I learned how this post was actually happening during the time of the 2016 election. So I connected saying, oh, OK, during this time, they um, this post was meant to make Americans target immigrants and want them to not, you know, be welcome into this country. Right. So, Well, so, in, Judith, you mentioned librarians. That, um, librarians at Emory are apparently an integral part of this. It, it, and if, I think a lot of people might think, a librarian? <laughs> I mean, we just go to the Internet. How did, how, did you, how did you wish people, what do you want people to know about library sciences and how they research? Well, first, I have to say, I think the librarians are going to save us. Um, but they are at the absolute forefront of thinking about access to sources. How do you evaluate sources? Our librarians are so, uh, we work especially, Chela Vallinathan in the Emory Library, who's our world history librarian, will work students through an exercise of looking at website information. How do you evaluate it? How do you find out more about the author? How do you see other things that are on this website? She does an absolute fabulous job. And then an important part of what we do is get the students in deep into the library, getting books out of the library, looking at databases for journal articles so that they can really begin seeing what scholars and experts say about the field. Mm -hmm. Librarians, and I'll say also the Writing Center. It's a team effort that they also really push the students on that, you know, looking at their sources and documentation. Judith Miller there, Dr. Judith Miller, Associate Professor of History at Emory University. She teaches a course on fake news literacy for first-year students. Natalia Thomas took that course at Emory last semester. So, Natalia, since taking this course, do you feel like the way that you consume news has changed? Yes, I definitely do. I used to just take what I read at face value. I didn't really dive deeper into, okay, is this source actually legitimate? Is what what they're saying actually true? So I've learned to be more cautious about what I'm consuming and make sure to check multiple news sources and see what they're saying about certain how does, issues. How do you think that compares to your peers and how they read the news or consume it? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, as a teenager, I know that we, li you know, we live in the age of social media, and I feel that it's very common for us teenagers to read a headline, just read that article, and use that article as our only, you know, knowledge or, 
use that to form our opinion just mm-hmm. on that one source. So I, I feel that it's how I'm different is that I'm now taking more steps to read multiple sources rather than just one to gain knowledge about certain issues. Right. So you mm-hmm. now know that immigrants or refugees were not receiving yes. those kind of checks, right? <laughs> yes. And and you can see where that goes. A lot of what you looked at through this course was at older news stories that were later proved false. Or at least not completely true, but we have the benefit of hindsight for that. Is it possible to spot a fake news story as it's happening? Judith, do you want to pick that up? I, I think, well, first, one can just look at what the source is, what else is on that website, what do you know about the author. But I think also that you need to have some sort of a gut check. Is there something about this news story that is going to try to sow division along Divides that we already know about in society, whether it's along race or class or religious ethnicity or along political issues. And if it seems like there's a chance that this is trying to deepen divisions, then I think your skepticism meter needs to to go up. Mm-hmm. I we, think well, that, we just yeah. heard for, during the newscast about the, the fake video of, of Nancy Pelosi. Now, technology can make things look differently. How do, how do you advise students to gut check that? Oh, boy. Well, I think there it's you've got a couple very easy, fast things you can do. And again, it is really look at the source. Can you find this out there on other sources uh, that are perhaps more Mainstream news, I I think there's an awful lot to be said for mainstream news for the kinds of qualities that someone who has a real journalistic training, sourcing, evidence um, can, can very much help there. Well, and in previous iterations of this course, you taught about the psychology behind the susceptibility to believing false news. What is it about a fake news story that is so appealing? Well, I think that the packaging has gotten so very smart. Slick with music, with the kinds of editing, with the kinds of visual images, with the kinds of headlines you put on it where you can, you know, really get someone's attention. Almost the more extreme, the more likely it is for somebody will want to read it. Mm-hmm. And there I have to say, my French Revolution training <laughs> certainly comes into the... <laughs> Off with it's certainly head. appropriate. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Well, so for you, for... Um, Natalia, mm-hmm. when you see this kind of stuff, and if, if people pass it around on Facebook, are you in the, or, or TikTok or whatever, whatever the kids are using these days, um, do you, do you stop it? Do you, do you call people on it? Well, I'm not actively involved in mm-hmm. social media as much. I just, um, read different articles, mm-hmm. but I like to have discussions with my family members, especially my uncle on news and my brother as well. So, if I see something, I'll talk about it with them and just see what what um, sources that have they heard about that. Mm-hmm. Like, what did they see? What did like? Yeah, like it's interesting because it's it seems to be pointing us towards a lot of legacy media. You know, sort of a lot mm-hmm. of established media. If you're talking about mainstream news, which of course uh, people, uh, especially on mm-hmm. the extreme right and on the extreme left, will mm-hmm. call the lamestream mm-hmm. news. Well, Judith, this is a class for Emory undergrads. Any tips for someone who's looking to be a better news consumer who isn't able to enroll in the course? Oh, my. Well, I would say we can look at maybe the example of Finland, if you'll let me go there for a second, is that Finland has been very good at combating fake news. And one of the things one sees is that the uh, Finns read more than people in the U.S. do. So I would say start by reading more, which that's a personal decision, and who knows who has time to do that. But 
finding out more about the world, being more curious about the world, is so important. And I think as much as one wants to hope that Facebook will uh, start putting up more guardrails, I think so much comes back to us as individual readers and individual individual citizens to decide to do the work that will protect, I think, democracy, not just in the U.S., but around the world. So read more, become more curious about the world around you so that you have a better frame of reference for the things that are coming at you. Well, we have an extreme finophile on her staff who's going to be very, very happy to hear that. Natalia, what were some of your biggest takeaways from this class, do you think? Well, yes, I learned um, when Ever you want to analyze a fake news event, you need to look at the context um, behind that event. So looking at, you know, the political environment, the social environment, <clears throat> excuse me, and the, <clears throat> the racial environment, what is happening during the time of when this fake news event is spreading, because that can give you a lot of hints as to why people are so susceptible to believing it. Um, for example, um, one of the projects I worked on was the Central Park Five case, mm-hmm. and we did a whole. My classmates and I got to do a whole class session on it, and this was happening in New York, late 1980s. And there's always been this um, um, view that black men are aggressive, and that they like that they are aggressive, and that they like to target white women. So just analyzing the context behind why certain events spread is important. Good time to do that. A terrific documentary about the now vindicated five, they're called. Natalia Thomas, Mm -hmm. first-year student at Emory University. Dr. Judith Miller, associate professor of history at Emory University. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We talked about the fake news class for first-year students, helping them develop media literacy and research skills. We'll be back with more of On Second Thought in just a minute, seeing from some giants in the design field. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. As 2019 drew to a close, protests spilled into cities from Hong Kong to Santiago, Paris to Tehran, from Khartoum to La Paz. People around the world flocked to the streets, often with handmade signs addressing their objections to policy changes, power grabs, and cutbacks. Images of those protests and those signs were posted and reposted online, often with hashtags amplifying their causes and their rage. The power of images to communicate disagreement is the subject of an exhibition now on view at the Museum of Design Atlanta. The Design of Dissent is based on a book of the same title, co-authored by two of the most prominent names in the world of design. Even if you don't know Milton Glaser, you've seen his I Heart New York campaign or that poster of Bob Dylan with a psychedelic pompadour. He is a legend in the field and the first graphic designer to win the National Medal of Arts. Milton Glaser, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. And you've likely also seen the work of Mirko Ilich. His logos, his book covers, his movie titles, and his other work. He's a former art director for Time Magazine Publications and the New York Times op-ed pages and runs his own firm, Mirko Ilich Corp. Mirko Ilich, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. So this book, The Design of Dissent, was first published in 2005. There's been a series of exhibitions in museums since. You both have a body of work behind us. You could do anything, advertising, book covers, but you chose design of dissent. What's the draw there? So much of the advertising we see and experience is nonsense or pernicious. Every time you can actually make a commentary and help people understand the world as it is, 
is a benefit to yourself and to your community. And I think what designers look for, certainly Merco and myself, are opportunities where we can intervene in the role of the design of society to do something we feel has positive effect rather than simply encourage people to buy more stuff. Well, that's interesting. Coming from somebody who's a legend in advertising, is it descent somehow antithetical to advertising? Let's not mix advertising with propaganda. <laughs> uh, posters about descent are important because they allow individuals to express their feelings towards their government policy or injustice. Uh, also, they're important because we all think about that until we don't see image which is addressing that issue, we feel alone. But once when you see somebody else is thinking as you, you feel better about yourself, you feel empowered. Well, George Orwell did say famously, all art is propaganda, not all propaganda is art. How do you place that in the context of political posters? The word art is so mischievous because it's functionally incomprehensible in terms of distinguishing between what is and what is not art. The only way to ultimately determine what art is is the consensus of history, which may take three or four hundred years. The role that art plays in our culture is somewhat ambiguous. It's used basically as a selling tool and as a decorative element to make people pay attention. So what you really are dealing with in communication is attentiveness. And very often it's not so much the message that people pay attention to, but the drama that encircles the message, the decorative qualities, the colors, the forms, and all the other devices that the people in advertising know how to use so well to engage them into affection and action. The role of most designers in culture is to help the culture sell itself, engaging more people in the act of negotiation to sell and to buy, and that ultimately, at this moment in history, has become extremely questionable. In fact, I would say that the worst thing that is happening now is the transformation of the world into a consumer society. So is that part of the motivation of picking up design and messaging that counters that? Well, one thing you begin to understand is that the world feels this, that the power structure of the world is out of the hands of most of the people in the world. They want to say something about it. So from one point of view, it is the truest expression of people's feelings that life is not the way it should be. And an attempt to uh, vocalize that and to express that idea, even though we see it contradicted by the power structure, people are beaten in the street, people are prevented from demonstrating, all the things that we would say demonstrates a democratic system and a democratic society have been violated in our time and go on even to this day. There are so many different causes that are represented here. There's environmental causes and climate change, LGBTQ rights, poverty rights, and, and you organized the book into themes like communism or guns. So how did you figure out what you wanted to include with so much, as it sounds like, that you have to say? Well, I, I think it would have been wrong for us simply to uh, express what we wanted to say. What we were attempting to do when Mirko and I started is kind of 
collect the consensus of what the world was saying at this moment in terms of different single issues, all related by the acts of power structures that were not in the best interests of the people, but they manifest themselves in so many different ways. Pollution, the environment, global warming, political structure, and so on. And everybody has something to say that opposes all these negative impulses in society. And I think also people in different environments, they can see similarity of the problems. Because pollution or uh, global warming is not problem of United States only, it's problem of whole world. Hunger is problem of whole world. Because of that, people can see in different cultures, in, in different environments, how one group of people react on that. And, uh, for example, what is interesting, uh, this show, Design of the Sand, in this point of time, is in Museum of Design in Atlanta, but in same time is in Casa del Lago in Mexico City. And same posters down both places that telling probably slightly different story, but actually they're telling similar story to different people. You are in this exhibition and in your book, for the most part, representing very progressive causes. Would somebody who didn't agree with you, who walked in wearing a MAGA hat to one of these shows, what would they see? Actually, when I send a call for people to submit work, I send a call to everybody. And uh, for one reason or another, only people who is, let's say, progressive on left responded to that call. Even we had few response, let's say, from other side, and they're in a book. There is, I think, spread in a book against Obama. And I will publish any credible and good work from any side, except for some reason we never got nothing from the other side. Because of that, maybe somebody who walk on show will think we are narrow-minded, but actually that is the work which one we got. My guests are Milton Glaser and Mirko Elich. We're talking about The Design of Descent. It's an exhibition based on their book of the same title, currently on view at the Museum of Design Atlanta. It runs through February the 8th. Both of you have been successful artists and in advertising and in other applications. Design, of course, integrates text and imagery. And having spoken with a lot of the artists who made this, do you have examples of how people decided that balance of what they're saying in their message or showing it? Or how have you achieved that? Well, it's a subtle question. The, the whole nature of how things are communicating is very complex. And it depends on language, of course, imagery, memory, uh, society at the moment and so on. So there are a lot of factors involved. And they're not only linguistic, they're also visual. And if the visual stuff, you don't even know why people like certain things. Why do certain people prefer yellow over blue? Or why a round form over a square form and so on? And what is the combination of elements that add up to making people convinced they should have affection for a mark or a product or a, an idea? It's very complex, not susceptible to analysis, and always being an al analyzed in narrative terms. But the narrative is not the only thing that affects people's lives. The symbolic, the mythological, the memories, uh, the quality of light, all these things have a role in their effect on the neurons in the brain, and nobody knows sufficiently about them. They do know a certain series of tricks that seems to work, and by repeating those tricks over and over, you produce a kind of consensus.
Do you remember, Milton Glaser or Mirko, the first image that you saw that kind of captured ideas for you, that just something clicked in your brain? I remember very vividly, and later I discovered Milton was part of that, when Amnesty International published a series of posters to raise fundings for Amnesty International. And some of those posters, there was just amazing. One of them, let's say, poster of uh, Roman Cisljevic, two hands holding the clouds, just strike me as a powerful uh, and mighty, like anything else. And those kind of images and power or effect which on the head on me kind of trigger me to create something what may be going to have similar effect on other people. Of course, that doesn't happen often, but when it happens, it's amazing. Mm. The thing that's most difficult to deal with is the fact that most people will not change their perception about anything. Everybody looks at things in terms of pre-existing realities for themselves and will not adjust to the reality that they are faced with. The fact that in global warming terms, nothing has been done at the eve of the end of the Earth is an indication of to what degree the power structures hold the minds of billions in a situation where they will not act appropriately, or if they do act, they feel it is pointless. What changes people's perception is one of the profound issues of life. But we do know that unless you change your perception of what is real, you cannot understand reality on any level. And the first thing to do for all of us is to acknowledge that we know very little about anything. There have been some very famous images of descent from real life. I think of the black-gloved fist in the air from the 1968 Olympics, or uh, now Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's collars have, uh, and RBG herself, those images have become symbols of a certain way of thinking and descent. Do you think images inspired from real life have a different power than concepts or, or graphics that are just completely made up? Uh, yes. Yes, because uh, there was thousands and thousands of pages of what is happening in Iraq prisons and about torture by American contractors, etc. And very few people react on that until they release those images from Abu Ghraib, especially image of hooded guy with spreaded arms standing on a box and attached to the electric wires. That image pretty much changed everything. That image became icon of that era and of that dark part of, of uh, our government. And it's question always to ask why. You know, maybe because he had spread arms and he looked like a Jesus and like a religious symbol. Who knows why, but that triggers something in the mind of people. One single image changed everything. Mm. Same like with image with with a Tiananmen Square a person with a plastic bag standing in front of tanks. Almost in every decade, you have one of those images which can change everything after. I, I do want to just point out, Mirko was referring to the Iraq posters in the show from the New York Collective, Copper Green, using that image from Abu Ghraib the arms outstretched, the hooded figure, uh, and making it look like an iPod ad. Um, 
It's not just the design of the thing. It's the intervention, I think, that Milton was talking about earlier, putting it in the place where it makes the most difference, the most impact. Yes, because, you know, it, it, what is lately happening, lots of designers do things for themselves and they put them in, in some local shows where it's just other designers that come in and pretty much it's becoming a little celebration of your uh, talent and whatever, but doesn't do any impact to society. You know, there, there are also some that play with images that we've already seen over and over again, like the Abu Ghraib hooded image. There's a For Freedom series. This is for, for from the New York artists Hank Willis, Thomas, and Eric Gotsman. I hope I'm pronouncing that okay. They take these Norman Rockwell-like paintings of the Four Freedoms. This was back from the, I think, 1940s. And then they play with those images with new, more contemporary images. Why did those speak to you? And why do you think they speak to us who are viewers? I don't know if they do speak to you. I don't know who they do speak to. I don't know who they change. I don't know who they just represents a restatement of their existing beliefs. Uh, the stuff is so obscure in terms of its effect. Persuasion is the role of advertising. The question that advertising never asks itself is what are the consequences of this work on the public it addresses? And that, of course, is the most significant question that could be asked. Am I doing harm should be the first thing that a designer asks. Who is being harmed? What is the effect of the society I live in on the work that I do? If you go to an advertising agency, you will never find anyone asking that question. The only criteria is how many did we sell today? And that criteria is not sufficient as the world is now telling us. How is the persuasion then of these posters, which are designed for some kind of effect, how is that different? Uh, I would say that when it's good and when it works and when it is not self-serving, it is different because it makes an alternative vision available to you. Because up until now, you had never thought of something. And it, your response to these things should be, oh, I never thought of that. The fact is that you are now seeing an aspect of life that has not been presented to you before and in fact has been denied by the culture and here's a chance to see it. That's why they're so often transgressive and why they have to be transgressive in order to seize your attention. Most of the time, the stuff that you see simply confirms your belief in the existing condition. We're going to take a short break and be back with Milton Glaser and Mirko Alich. Their book, The Design of Descent, inspired a series of exhibitions throughout the world. It's now on view at the Museum of Design Atlanta until February the 8th. In the spirit of Milton's famous Bob Dylan poster and in the spirit of descent, here's Dylan's The Times They Are a-Changin'. I'm Virginia Prescott. On Second Thought continues right after the break. This is GPB. Oh, And we're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Design is built into most everything we touch and interact with in our daily lives, from your coffee mug to your smartphone to your car. Aside from making products, design is key to selling them and to communicating ideas. Well, today we're talking with two giants in the advertising and graphic design business about how thoughtful arrangements of images and text can convey messages of opposition and often defiance to the status quo. 
Milton Glaser and Mirko Elich are co-authors of The Design of Descent. Rotating exhibitions based on the book have been touring museums since. One is now on view at the Museum of Design Atlanta, or MODA. Sometimes posters for marches, for example, are commissioned. Do you think that you can sense a difference between a design that has been commissioned versus one that was made because of the artist's own motivations? I was on a big march, a woman march, which one was uh, in January, if you remember, when uh, Trump moved in office. And there was, here in New York, there was tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And one thing was beautiful. Everybody had his own sign. You saw by signs that are handmade. Everybody wrote kind of on a sign something what bothered them. And there was some beauty in those signs not being uniform, some being amateurish, some being very funny, but there was some nice diversity in those signs. And it was obvious that was not organized by somebody. One of the works included in the exhibit is from the Gorilla Girls, an interesting case where a group of female artists designed art to protest the exclusion of women from places like the Metropolitan Museum of Art. This ended up later being featured at the Met. Uh, some may argue that is a sign of success. Other feels it portray, betrays the countercultural roots of the movement. What happens when you design something so successful you do lose control over it? Well, that's a cosmic question and it requires another 12 hours of conversation. <laughs> All I can say is every act has consequences and very often the consequences are not what you anticipate. We also know that things move, that they go from left to right and right to left, that the pendulum is always swinging, and whatever you think is permanent becomes impermanent. So give up. Just say, accept what is. Or maybe in a thousand years we're going to have guerrilla boys creating posters against all these females being represented in museums and no man. Who knows? Well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to hold my breath for that one, I will tell you. <laughs> I have doubt, too. You know, you've talked a lot about the ethics of design and, and how design can be used to persuade an audience into believing something that maybe not be the full truth and maybe even much more, uh, I guess, pernicious. How do you encourage designers to think about the power that they wield and design ethically? In a very simple way. Ask the questions that all doctors must ask. Do no harm. And if you feel you're doing harm, then admit it. You have to say, yes, I do harm. I want to send my kid to college and I want to have a bigger apartment. So I'm going to work in the agency and I'm going to tell people to buy things that may poison them. I admit it. I'm doing it. Okay. That's step one. Acknowledgement is step one. Step two is the commitment to feel that you have a role in society that's larger than yourself. I would love to ask both of you, just in closing, what advice you would give to a younger artist, so many who look up to you and would like to forge their own path in design, either in, you know, accepting their lot in advertising or somebody who wants to make design for dissent's sake. Um, quit the job, find something better to do. You know, I'm still coming to work... Uh, as often as I can, and I still love the work. And there's nothing more satisfying or, or more thrilling than seeing something in your mind and then transforming into something that's real in front of you. That transformation from an idea 
to a thing is still the most glorious thing that happens in my life. Milton Glaser and Mirko Ilich, renowned graphic designers who co-authored the book, The Design of Descent. That's also the title of and source material for an exhibition at the Museum of Design Atlanta. It's running through February the 8th. Details and images at gpbnews.org. Another effective form of protest, music, like George Perkins' Crying in the Streets. I see somebody. He was a civil rights icon and a beloved father and husband who would be 91 years old this year. On Monday, the nation celebrates the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The Georgia native was assassinated in 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee, a day after delivering one of his most memorable speeches. Here's actor Forrest Whitaker reciting, I've been to the mountaintop. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up. And wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same. We want to be free. That prophetic speech called for unity and progress during the Memphis sanitation strike and resonated with Atlanta poet and author John Good, who says King's words and actions inspired this tribute, Me, God, and Destiny. So I keep having this reoccurring dream. And in this dream, I sit alone in a room in Tennessee. And it's just me, my God, and my destiny. And I tell you, I feel like I feel like I've given the world the best of me, but now I can hear the balcony and the balcony is calling for the rest of me. And I can hear its sweet song like the sirens of the Odyssey and it's gotta be the American melting pot that unlocked the recipe for this tragedy. That took warriors, kings and queens from their homeland and had them shown they are three-fifths of human beings. And it was America who tried to convince them of this. Adding gashes from masters' fists and heavy lashes from the whips and queens forced to push masters' babies from their hips while their kings are forced to sit, helpless, and watch this. And it was America who tried to convince them that this was right. A middle passage that lasted longer than most life, dashing through the cotton field seeking freedom in the night. Death in the cotton field offers the only freedom in the light. Slowly we begin to see things in a different light. Slowly we begin to understand that every woman, child, and man has certain inalienable rights, I mean, Nat Turner and John Brown, they laid their life down when they took up the fight, and no one had to convince them that this was right. And here I sit, in a cold sweat, in this room in Tennessee, and it's just me, my God, and my destiny. And I am looking to the heavens like, if this is thy will, then let it be. I will walk the same road as the shepherds who came ahead of me. I will carry the same load as the martyrs who died instead of me. Moses and Harriet Tubman, they led women, children, and men across burning sands and through swamp land to the freedom promised them. And I, I have walked from Selma to Montgomery, 
with a multitude behind me and an angry horde in front of me with nothing but the strength of the Lord up under me and the weight of the world on my shoulders. But I will not backpedal and I will not retreat. I will not concede defeat. I've seen the fate of those who've come before me. I've looked into the eyes of Hoover and those who abhor me. I've been arrested in Georgia. I'm detested in Tennessee, Alabama, and Mississippi. But if God be for me, who can stand against me? He's blessed me and he's let me stand on Lincoln steps in the heart of D.C. and deliver a speech so passionate and unique about my dreams for equality. It reached my detractors and made them acknowledge me. Filled with so much truth, some of them began to follow me. I tell you, I have moved mountains with mere mustard seeds. And all that's left for me is what awaits on this balcony. I stand face to face with my destiny and the irony is that no man really lives that long. But through my death, maybe this dream could live on. Through those of you who find the voice to sing freedom song. Through those of you who speak of our struggles to your daughters and your sons. Through those of you who pick up the baton and continue to race on. Through those of you who understand that freedom is for all or freedom is for none. Our fight is for the all and our fight is for the one until God's will for us all be done. I tell you, I had a dream that I was alone in Tennessee and it was just me, my God, and my destiny. My name is John Good and this is a tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I wrote this poem in 2012. I was thinking about the legacy of Dr. King, of trying to get a group of people their civil rights under the threat of being assassinated and what intestinal fortitude it would take to do such a thing. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Dr. King had taken this on as his life's mission, as his job. And, and you know, I might not go to work if I'm tired. God forbid they're going to shoot me. I'd never go. So I was like, how incredible is this? How strong is this man? So I was actually in Tennessee driving past the Lorraine Hotel when these words started to come to me. And uh, against the steering wheel, I do not suggest anyone else do this, but against the steering wheel, I started just writing down um, the lines as they arrived. MLK Day is certainly a day of service. Um, I think I think everyone should should be involved in some way. So everyone should find some way to um, lend their hand and and lend their their strength and their resources to help others. What I typically do on the day of service and actually all through the year is there are a group of gentlemen they play chess at Woodruff Park, and I help them to try to I try to sponsor them for their um, their shelter fees for the homeless shelters, and I sit and talk with them and. We talk about life, we talk about what's going right and what's going wrong. And what so many people, especially the homeless, what they, what they need is just people to treat them like they're human beings. Like so often they're unseen and people just walk past them and just keep going. And if you just take a, a moment sometimes, you know, if you, if you feel safe to just, you know, shake their hand and talk to them, it just makes all the difference. When it comes to Dr. King's um, dream, I know his dream was one 
um, for us to to get our civil rights, to move toward economic freedom, like uh, where we could just stand as a people on our own. I think that's a dream that we're still working toward. I know there are individuals that have certainly made uh, great leaps and great strides toward um, independence, but I know we as a people are still pushing toward that mark. And I think that as we uh, move into 2020, we have to, we just have to keep our eyes on the prize. There's so much to be distracted with. There's the internet and there's, you know, all kinds of apps and all kinds of things you can uh, give your attention to. But I think that you have to be focused, you know, and understand that, you know, where we're going toward, the, the goal that we're driving toward, we have not achieved yet. And we have to keep moving in that direction. Wake up, everybody, no more sleeping in bed. No more backward thinking, time for thinking ahead. That was John Good, Atlanta-based poet, author, and playwright, reading from his poem, Me, God, and Destiny, honoring Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Monday marks the 25th anniversary of the national celebration of the civil rights leader's life and legacy. Here's John Legend in The Roots, featuring Common and Melanie Fiona with Wake Up, Everybody. You can follow Dr. King's lead to wake up and join those serving their community at events throughout the state on Monday. Hands On Atlanta is working with nonprofits and schools throughout the metro Atlanta area. Athens is also hosting volunteer projects in the community. Savannah begins the King holiday with a community cleanup and prayer walk. St. John United Methodist Church in Augusta invites you to chip in with service opportunities there. There is a full list of events and community opportunities on our website, gpbnews.org. When Tuesday rolls around, I will be interviewing NPR Morning Edition host Steve Inskeep on stage at the Carter Center in Atlanta. Turns out he is equally a sharp and observer of 19th century politics as the politics of today. His new book, Imperfect Union, follows the story of Jesse and John Fremont. They were a power couple all tied up in the history of American political parties, westward expansion, and the Civil War. Here he is talking about what could be America's first celebrity couple on All Things Considered. They were, after becoming very famous, involved in the presidential campaign of 1856. It was the first presidential campaign by the Republican Party. John C. Fremont was the first ever Republican nominee. And this was the first major political party in America that meaningfully opposed slavery. Up until that moment, major political parties had always needed, because of the electoral math, to appeal for Southern votes, which meant appealing for votes in slave states. And so they had to accommodate slavery. Uh, couldn't go against it very much at all. The Republican Party came about as the North's population grew so much that they realized, Northerners realized, they might win the presidency with Northern votes alone. They were trying this audacious way to take advantage of the demographic change in America to make what was seen then as a very progressive change, to meaningfully oppose the extension of slavery. This was something the South found very threatening. They threatened to blow up the Union, in effect, if, it, if the Republicans ever won power, and the Fremonts were there at the beginning of that.
It is a remarkable story, and you are invited to hear more on Tuesday, January 21st at the Carter Center. The event is free, but you can reserve a spot and a book from Acapella Books. Details at gpbnews.org. There's some other big stuff popping off after the holiday. GPB will air the impeachment trial set to start in D.C. on Tuesday. Then there's the General Assembly going on in Georgia and election 2020 happening everywhere. Well, GPB wants to keep you on top of all the political news. So beginning next Tuesday, Political Rewind will be live at 9 a.m. on weekday mornings in addition to its 2 p.m. slot. On Second Thought is moving to Fridays at 11, Saturdays at 7 a.m., and Sundays also at 11. That's going to give us a little more time for some projects that we're working on and more time for events in Georgia communities. We do hope that you will join on Second Thought for more of the in-depth conversations and storytelling that you've come to expect. From producers LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer, supervising producer Amelia Brock, engineer Jesse Nyswanger, executive producer Mary Lynn Ryan, and me, Virginia Prescott. Have a wonderful holiday weekend, and come find us next Friday at 11 for more on Second Thought. <laughs>